0: Two, two pitch. Swing Deep left. Back. Welcome back to another Baseball America Top 10 Prospects podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We are here to break down the Cincinnati Red system today. And to do that, we are joined by J.J. Cooper, fresh off of sending the 2024 Prospect Handbook to the printers. J.J., first
1: and foremost... How are you holding up? I'm tired, but it's a good tired. It's a happy tired. It's a tired that tells me that we're done and that the book is on the way to the printer. So uh, how about you?
0: Uh, good. Glad glad it's done again. As our executive editor, you had kind of the, the heavier lift at the end. So uh, just a uh, pre-podcast warning. If JJ uh, trips up on a few words or misspeaks once or twice, give him some grace period. He has not... Slept a ton in recent days. So, uh, but we're glad to have it done. JJ, when we did this podcast last year, it's kind of funny. It's representative to me of how quickly things can change in one year. At this time last year, when we talked about the Reds and their farm system and their future, you looked at it and said, they've got a really good young pitching group. You look at Hunter Green and Nick Lindolo and Graham Ashcraft, but I don't really know what the position player outlook is. You know, that's kind of the question mark. Now it's completely flipped one year later. We saw a lot of their starting pitchers struggle with injuries last year and effectiveness. And on the other hand, this impressive crop of position player rookies came up and made an immediate impact. Ellie De La Cruz obviously electrified the baseball world. Matt McClain had a fantastic rookie showing. Spencer Steer was one of the best rookies in the NL start to finish. We saw Christian Encarnacion-Strand come up. It was really just an impressive rookie showing. So I have to ask, what is the overall Reds organizational outlook now? They they were in the playoff race there for a little bit. They tailed off at the end, but all of a sudden,
1: things seem to be looking up in Cincinnati. Oh, uh, way up, because now, as much as they did have pitching injuries last year, those were injuries for young pitchers who have shown that they can start. And so you have the makings of a young rotation that should be under team control for years to come. I mean, I can pay, I can map out seven low homegrown starters who started in the big leagues for them last year, uh, or at least homegrown or acquired in trade while they were in the minors. And then you add to that, this young, uh, in exciting athletic group of position players. And the other crazy thing about this is, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit, they're all almost without fail at the very starts of their careers. They're on league minimums or they're on, you know, okay, they're get, they'll get to arbitration before too long. So this is a team that has almost no one. Joey Votto was the expensive player on the roster effectively. And Joey Votto's contract ended a, at the end of last year. You know, he did get through the entirety, except for the uh, option that they didn't take. But, but you look at that and you say, this is a team that should be better in 2024 than they were in 23. Again, if health uh, ensues and should be around for a while because there's not, this team's not going to get expensive. This team's not going to get old in the next year or two. And by the way, they're also in one of the centrals, which means the the, the landscape is much more wide open than if you're playing, say, in the NL West, where you go, oh, okay are we ever going to catch the Dodgers? Well, that's going to be really hard, but you know, are we going to be in the East where we go, wow, the AL East, you know, how many teams on there are going to be contending for playoffs? That's not going to be the case in either central. The NL central is tougher than the AL central, but you still look at it. You say the Cubs haven't done anything dramatic, at least yet. The Brewers seem like they're going to be as much trading away pieces as they are adding. The Pirates are still a step behind the Reds at best. You know, you You just kind of look through this whole, this entire division. You say it, and the Cardinals, I know the Cardinals have spent, but at the same time, the Cardinals are behind the Reds and have less young talent right now. So, yeah, what a difference a year makes. Yeah. I think
0: what was really encouraging for me, too, is how many of their position players got better. How many guys this organization helped get better? Because, look, you've done the red system for years. We talked about this. This is a team that, their player development track record has been very uneven at times. And they have some new faces in there they brought in a few years ago. And the early returns have been really, really good because, again, helping guys progress to the minors is obviously a good sign. But the point is to develop really good major leaguers. I'll start with Matt McLean. Um, I, I talked about last year. I had my doubts. I saw him at Beckman High School. I saw him at UCLA. I saw him in the Fall League. And. I, I had questions, and he came out and was one of the best rookies in baseball last year. came out noticeably stronger. He was playing a much better shortstop than he did in the fall league, really just got better all the way around. I mean, hitting 290, 16 homers, and basically half a season was really that exceeded even the expectations for the evaluators who did like him. He was on a 30 home run pace, which no one saw coming from Matt McClain. And I think, too, looking at guys like TJ Friedell and Jake Fraley, these are guys that, if you really, really liked them, were. Complimentary pieces, you know, 40, 45 grade players, you know, nice players to have, not studs. TJ Friedel hit 279. Basically, TJ Friedel hit 280 with an 820 OPS last year in 18 homers, uh, almost had a 2020 season. Jake Fraley posted, you know, an OPS 10% above league average, had a 15 homer season. It's noticeable to me that the Reds are helping guys get better than people thought they might be. And I know the power numbers are inflated a little bit by great American ballpark, but even Spencer steer has hit better than expected. Christianist and Carnacion strand took a jump. All these guys are getting better, which tells me that there's something really clicking in their player
1: development apparatus. And, and that's not even mentioning the fact that again, some of this is physical development, but Ellie de la Cruz went from being kind of, Oh, it's nice. We got a, you know, we got Ellie de la Cruz in our, in our signing class to, Ellie de la Cruz is the most exciting player in baseball in the span of of roughly four, four and a half years. I mean, basically, it was post pandemic that Ellie really kind of emerged on the on the scene. So. So, yeah, the other thing that stands out to me about that is, is that they have this young group that all came up. I mean, we could sit here and just list rookies from last (laughs) year. You know, it, it would take half the podcast. But the other part of this is, is, it's not like they've hit on everything. No one hits on everything. They've had draft picks that you would, you'd, would, you would like to have that Austin Hendrick pick over if you could, you know, and and things like that. But I don't want to diminish the the level of difficulty. Before last year, the Reds were in sell mode for multiple years, and to their credit, they did have some guys who were valuable to sell. Luis Castillo is a prime guy to be trading. Like that, that's a, a, a key trade chip. Tyler Molly was a good trade chip, but those are the types of players where we've seen time and time again, teams trade a player like that at the deadline. And then you look at it, the dust clears a couple of years later and you say, well, they got a guy who helped in their pen, you know, or yeah, so-and-so they try, but it didn't work out very well. the the Reds just kept hitting on those, you know, talk about, It's been the major trades, you know, adding a Spencer Steer, adding a Christian Encarnacion Strand in the Tyler Marley trade, adding a Brandon Williamson, who was a useful member of the rotation last year, guys like that. But it's also adding a Jake Freely who was kind of a throw. Adding Will Benson for, uh, you know, for Justin Boyd, like at the time seemed like a trade that kind of could just slide under the radar. And Will Benson was a productive, was a very productive part-time outfielder for them last year. Yep. in and that's one of those guys who they just figured out almost from day one that they had him how to use him properly how to get value out of him not something where it's like we sent him to the miners and we worked on him for two years to get him there that was a that was a trade from last spring that ended up impacting them and helping them this year The the key thing now i do think when we talk about this is is we also do have we talked about you know the williamsons and all that but if Nicoladolo can come back healthy, if Hunter Green can be healthy, if Grant Ashcraft and Andrew Abbott can continue, you know, even if they just continue doing if Andrew Abbott just does what he did last year, thumbs up, sign up, you know, and and take that. And if they can do that, this team does have a chance to to kind of be very interesting in 2024 and beyond.
0: Yeah, they went 82 and 80 last year, only two games out of the last in a wild card spot. And as you mentioned, the NL Central is very, very, very winnable. And I think what's interesting about them is you can see places where if there's an improvement here or there, it's not hard to imagine them getting to that 88 win level, maybe even the 90 win level. And before we dive into this year's prospect crop and how they'll help, I actually want to look back at last year's number one prospect. Ellie De La Cruz came up, electrified the majors with... His speed, his arm, his power. We saw that incredible series where he stole three bases in a span of two pitches, including home. But while that excitement when he first came up was very, very real, he really fell off hard. After the All-Star break, he hit 191, had a 36% strikeout rate. And it wasn't like he was hitting 191, but the on-base and the power were there either. Uh, It was a 627 OPS. slug was 350 pitchers figured out his holes and, and you know kind of peeling behind the curtain here at baseball america we had a lot of discussions about Ellie to and i've talked about this ad nauseum. a strikeout rate over 28 percent in the minors is a red flag because if you if you're striking out almost a third of the time against minor league pitching you're not going to hit major league pitching enough you're just not and ellie kind of towed that line he was higher than you liked but you saw some trends where you said okay maybe it's getting better Maybe it can work out. Um, you were less worried about it. I've been a little more worried about the whiff issues. And we saw that Major League pitchers adjusted to him after the All-Star break. And he really struggled to adjust back. There are big holes there. What is his outlook moving forward? What what version of Ellie is, quote-unquote, the real version? Are we going to see something in the middle? Or do you think he can get to that guy we saw at the beginning?
1: I think, actually, there the thing that we're going to have to watch, and it was kind of hard to see it sometimes in... September, because it didn't really come out dramatically in the stats, you know, as far as the production stats, but we did start to see him tack back to that. His chase rate started to go back down. His contact rate went up, which are the key things that, and I am always been very high on Ellie, but acknowledging, you know, I I did a piece, uh, I think before he came up, it's like, look, he's, I agree with you completely, Kyle, that he's always a guy who's been on that cusp of this could be great. Or this could be a guy who we look at and and kind of come back to and say, like, I mean, to give a modern day example of it, to go back to when we talk about Bo Jackson, Bo Jackson was the most exciting player of the late 1980s. I don't think that there was a player in baseball, including Griffey, including anyone who was more exciting than Bo Jackson. There was never a point at any point in any season where Bo Jackson was the best player in baseball or even close to it because it was like you get the great and then you got a lot of strikeouts and all that. And Ellie was on a pace, you know, bad Ellie is on a pace to not even be close to what Bo Jackson was doing. But you always see this with Ellie De La Cruz is like, okay, he may take some time to kind of get accustomed to a level. And we absolutely saw that the league not just caught up, the major leagues not just caught up to Ellie De La Cruz, but they were ahead of Ellie De La Cruz. Although he is so talented, so athletically gifted and all, that even in those moments, he would still have that game every now and then where it's like, oh, Ellie just took over this game, and then tomorrow he might strike out three times. But I do think if you look at it, if you look at what we saw in September, and and again, I tried to watch a lot of Ellie because Ellie's (laughs) really fun to watch. I do think we saw signs that he's starting to figure out the same way that he did that he's generally done in the minors in whenever he's been in the minors, he's often kind of had this point of time where that level, especially at the upper levels kind of figures him out and then he figures it out back. And we do have to remember he is also freakishly young where there was kind of a, even talking to Reds officials. There was some, I think, belief here that on um, that there was kind of going to be the need to let the major leagues show Ellie what he had left to do because the problem we had in the minors, crazily enough, is the there was no level of the minors good enough to do that to him. Like <laughs> he would, he could chase, he could do things like that. He we talked about it coming out of 2022. He struck out at rate, no one, we couldn't find anyone who hit 300 while striking out at the rate that Ellie De La Cruz did in 2022 because no one ever does, but he was so talented in so many ways that it was like, oh yeah, I'm going to strike out 34% of the time and hit 300 where everyone else who strikes out this rate, like hits like 220, 230, 240 if they're lucky. And we saw him strike out 34% of the time in the majors last year. He can't keep that up. If that's if we're talking two years from now and LA Dela Cruz is striking out at 32% of the time, 31% of the time, it's it's a bad sign. But I don't think it's crazy to think he's always going to be probably at the higher end of that. But it's not crazy to think that we could be talking a year from now and saying he got it from 34, 337 percent down to 28, 29%. Yeah. Now if he can just get it to 26, 27%, we're not gonna have any concern. Not any real significant concerns about that, because that's got it into the range of when you consider his power, his arm, his speed, all these aspects, you could have a very good player who still strikes out at a higher rate than most, still chases more than many, but does everything else. But he has to get it to that level. I just was I was encouraged. I was not encouraged in August, but if you look at what he was doing in September and October, I do think we were showing seeing signs of that. But they also have to figure out with this, this is fascinating. Like they they signed Jimer Candelario to a free agent deal. But that was a really odd signing given the number of infielders they have, particularly corner guys. So if they had had Candelario before, I'd have probably looked at it and said, well, he's a logical trade candidate because they have too many of these. I, Jonathan India, it, it would surprise me at this point. If Jonathan India is on this team, when spring training begins, I'll be kind of a little bit surprised just because I run out of ways. Even if you say we want to give Nuelve Marte some more time in the minors, even though he played solidly in September and looks like he's doesn't, you know, maybe he doesn't need a ton more time. Yeah. I I puzzled, I struggle to put the jigsaw puzzle together. Even if you say that Spencer Steers now an outfielder and not an infielder, you're still talking about Encarnacion Strand, Matt McLean, Ellie De La Cruz, Heimer Candelario, Jonathan India, Noelve Marte, yeah, And again, Spencer Steer really has played as more infield than outfield so far. And that's just for four infield spots plus yeah. DH. Yeah. It's hard, it's hard to see how all pieces together, but I do think with that, I would be interested to see if they can. I don't think Jonathan India is going to land a blockbuster return, but if they could get an outfielder in return, because I think that's where there's there's some there's still some need there. And maybe that also gets filled from within, but there still is some need as good as we just talked about with Fraley, with Friedel, with you know, Stuart Fairchild, with Will Benson, it'd be nice to have one more kind of dumper out there to go with everything else they
0: Absolutely. Well, JJ, this is a good setup for the top 10 prospects in the organization. Again, a lot of guys that were on the top 10 list are now in the major leagues, which is the point of all this. I want to dive into the current year's top 10. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll take a look at the Reds Farm system.
1: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. all right, Kyle Glazer back here with JJ
0: Cooper breaking down the Reds farm system entering 2024. JJ, we talked a lot about the crop of rookies that came up last year and made an immediate impact for the Reds. Noelvi Marte is the Reds' number one prospect for 2024. We saw him come up as you mentioned in September. Hit really, really well. He was the top prospect they acquired from the Mariners in the deal for Luis Castillo at the 2022 trade deadline. What ultimately elevated Noelvi Marte to the number one prospect spot in this farm system and, and how close was it, if it was close at all with anyone else?
1: The, the main thing that elevated him would I be saying would be graduations, which is, <laughs> is that we had Ellie and we had McLean and we had steer and we had Incarnacion strand and we had Brandon Williamson. And we had, we, we had like seven guys from last year's top 30 who've graduated. Noelvi is the one of that top tier, I would say who didn't. So I think from that standpoint that the guy that you would say was in consideration for that one was Rhett Lauder, their first round pick from last year, but he's a pitcher versus Marte's a hitter one, but two, as you noted, Marte played solidly in the big leagues at the end of last year. And so if you say we try to factor upside ceiling, what they're going to roll and risk and it's, I would say that Marte from that standpoint is relatively low risk as a prospect can go from a standpoint of you have someone who has reached the majors who showed it was a short sample, obviously he's still rookie eligible. So you know that, but he didn't look overmatched. He finished the season on a hitting streak. He finished the season as kind of a guy who was in the lineup regularly for them. So I feel like that he goes into the 2024 season thinking Okay, I know that they signed Jaime Candelaria. I know they have Jonathan India. I know they have Spencer. But I plan on being a regular on this team, and and it does make a whole lot of sense that he could. The other thing that just does stand out with Noel Marte is he's kind of that sneaky athletic. Uh, I guess is the way I put it. He went from being kind of athletic to sneaky athletic in that he has definitely filled out uh, more and more as a as a pro, but it hasn't really impacted, you know, some guys get bigger and they really slow down. Some guys get bigger and they really get stiff into Alvi Marte's case. He still runs pretty well. He's still, you may look at it and say, wow, he's, you know, he was a shortstop. Okay. He did outgrow. I would say he's outgrown shortstop realistically, yeah. but it's very plausible. He's a third baseman. Um He has a cannon of an arm. Like, I think actually when we talk about, I don't think that they're going to do this with him, but when we talk about, Hey, where are the outfitters in this team? it's not crazy to say if the role, if they need presented itself, that Noel v. Marte also wouldn't be a potentially profile type right fielder. He can he can run way better than you may think he can, and he's got a cannon of an arm. But again, he's he fits right now as a third baseman on a team that has about, <laughs> um, even if you don't count Christian on on strand, who was a third baseman primarily coming up, seems to have a, a dozen of them. But that said, he's a guy who's, Right, knocking on the door, goes into spring training with a legitimate shot at a regular job in that Reds lineup.
0: Yeah, you talk about Noelvi Marte moving well. I I noticed that even when I saw him in Modesto as a low A, nineteen year old, he always moved well for a big guy. I think the thing with Noelvi Marte is, first and foremost, his talent is prodigious. You you have to be blind not to see Mm it. Um, The power he shows, the ability to make contact. You mentioned he moves well for his size. He's you know got an arm when he really gets behind it, the talent is there. There's no doubt about that. There's never been a doubt about that throughout his time in the Mariner system. And, and even last year a little bit, the red system, the the issue is there were too many times he was not focused. He was not engaged. The effort level was not where you wanted to see it. And that would manifest in in inconsistent levels of fitness and conditioning. It would manifest in him giving away outs on both sides of the ball um, again, when he was locked in and focused, he was a force on the field, but there were too many times when he wasn't, I saw it a lot throughout that first year in Modesto. And, and I really thought the microcosm, I saw what the microcosm of it was in the fall league last year in 2022. Um, there was a three game stretch where you got the full, Noelvi Marte experience. There was a game, was just a, a regular season standings game in the AFL, and he's playing third base and there's a foul pop-up, third base, a routine foul pop-up that everyone should grab. And he kind of stared at it as if he decided whether or not he really wanted to go get it. Half jogged over to it, and the ball fell. It should have been an out, and he just didn't put in the effort to go get it. it. Cost this pitcher an out. Then you saw at bats, where he would just go up there with no intent to hit, just gave it bats away. Um, other times where he was barely running the bases. But then when... The team he was on moved into the semifinals of the Arizona Fall League, trying to get to the championship game. He turned it on. He hit a rocket to right center field. He made a great play defensively. He was moving well. And then the championship game, the next day, he played well too. And so with Nuevi Marte, it's always been a case of when he's focused and dialed in, he can take over a game. He's a force. But at least during his time with the Mariners, and again, you would see it even a little bit last year in the fall league, there were too many times he wasn't focused and dialed in and left you frustrated. What is the update on that? Because I feel like that more than anything is going to determine who Nuevo Marte is is a major leaguer. Is it just useful immaturity? He's outgrowing? Or is this a persistent issue where you might see a guy who, you know, kind of does frustrate you and, and gets himself benched for not hustling out balls in the middle of the season?
1: It got better as he climbed the ladder, which may be maturity, but also maybe like the, the good news, I guess, kind of on that is when Noel Vi in the big leagues, when he was at the end of the year, it's a lot harder, especially if he's in the big leagues on a team that's battling for a playoff spot, you know, that's, that's the time that's kind of easy to be locked in. And so I can't tell you if the Reds end up at, you know, 75 wins, what we're going to see, but we did see from him, uh, you know, as the season went along last year, kind of a locked in Noel V Marte. Yeah. And I, I do kind of wonder, like with that, again, we are talking about the 22 right. part of that is, is like, this is a thing that I always kind of find that's a struggle about the AFL, especially <laughs> is the AFL is the level where not that he's not had times like this in the regular season, minor leagues also, but that's where we do see guys who seem like that. you really do see like McLean the year before as an example of this. Not that he wasn't running balls out or anything like that, but Matt McLean, you know, lat the year before, I remember just getting reports on he looks completely and utterly toast out here. He just looks yeah. now he looks out
0: all, but I think that was that was more of a you could see with McLean it was tiredness, and I actually thought I was concerned about the skill level. I think Marte was more blatant effort, and, and right, I think too. But- Yeah, well, I think it's interesting. I, I, whenever I you know see this and hear this, I feel like there's two ways it can go, and and I'm gonna use two examples here. Kyle Tucker was a guy who would do this a lot in the minor leagues, and he got criticized for it. He got to the majors; hasn't been an issue. He's been more than fine. He's turned to a great player. The other side of it, you have Alex Verdugo, who this was a persistent issue. High school, minors, every level, and we've seen in the majors where he gets benched. He does. He shows up late to meetings. He gets chewed out in clubhouses. Just got traded and today and probably an interview that showed the least self-awareness of any player I can think of was criticizing a known players manager for not having his back when he was the one doing things that deserve to be benched and criticized for. So I feel like that's kind of the two ends of the spectrum where both guys are in the major leagues. Their talent has gotten them there, but Kyle Tucker has been able to put that aside and become a star. Alex Verdugo has never gotten over it and it has held him back.
1: Well, I'll say with Marte. The, the good news for the Reds is I don't think that the Reds need, again, they would love if Develi Marte becomes a star, yeah. but they're really looking at him and saying, if you can end up being the fourth, fifth best player in the lineup, we'll be fine because that's the thing that this team has right now. Again, this is a, it, it's funny mm-hmm. when you mentioned kind of the preamble, I've been doing the Reds long enough that it's like, I remember when they were kind of, I mean, developmentally wise, if you go back to the late 2000s, they were on a roll, right? Like they produced Jay Bruce and Johnny Cueto and Homer Bailey and Todd Frazier and uh, Yonder alonso they traded away and Joey Votto and Devin. Like they built a team that actually had success. Oh yeah. But didn't win in the playoffs. And then it went off a cliff. And now we're having them, now the question is going to be, I, I think that success for this is measured by going to the playoffs is nice, but really what Cincinnati Reds fans need is, I mean, winning a World Series, okay, it's been a long, long time. That would be utter success. But winning a series or two would be like, okay, great. We haven't done that. There are there are longtime Reds fans who, who are not, you know they're not teenagers or anything who are like, I don't remember one of those. So there that is you know where and again, but I do think Marte's a guy who they need him to be a good uh, a wingman. you know, they don't need him to be a star, but they do need him to be a good wingman to the Ellie de la Cruzs and the guys like that.
0: yeah, and again, the talent is there and and you certainly can see that turning out that way and and really being a beneficial development for the Reds, as well as just his own career. J.J., you mentioned Rhett Lauder, their first-round pick, was the other player kind of in consideration for, you know, the number one spot here. There's two pitchers here in the top five that are interesting for different reasons. Connor Phillips and Chase Petty, both acquired in trades. Connor Phillips was acquired in the trade with the Mariners that sent Jesse Winker and Eugenio Suarez to Seattle. Chase Petty was acquired for Sonny Gray from Minnesota. Both of these pitchers faced a lot of start relief questions. And Phillips in particular, there was a lot of, hey, it's a really good arm, he's probably a reliever. Petty, again, smaller guy, threw hard, a lot of sense he'd be a future reliever. Both of them have seen their starter probability tick up since joining the Reds organization. What do these two pitchers project to be now,
1: and how do you kind of assess them? So Phillips is a... The funny part about this is is Connor Phillips... Is the older pitcher who's pitched in the big leagues? Who one would think that we'd be like, Oh, well, we know more about what he's going to turn out to be, as opposed to Chase Petty, who's the high school pitcher who has really been on a pretty, you know, pretty tight workload concerns and all that. And you'd be like, Okay, so he's the high variable one, and Connor Phillips is the one like you kind of know what he's going to be. And it's kind of to me a little bit flipped on that because. We, what we know of Chase Petty is what we saw coming out of high school and what he is now seems so different that it's kind of like, wait, were we talking about the same player? Because he was touching 100 in high school and with a delivery that was like, I'm going to throw it either through the catcher or through the backstop you know, 20 <laughs> feet over his head. And now he's much more of a kind of in control pitcher who keeps developing new pitches, really has good feel kind of sits in the low to mid nineties. Most of the time, you don't really see 98, 99 out of his arm or anything like that, but you're like, he's a really pretty polished young pitcher who, if he can handle the workload, he has all kinds of starter traits. Connor Phillips, if it all breaks, right, he's really going to be a good starter. But then there's also, I can't get out of my head. Like one of those starts now the reds, Let's just start with the Reds put a lot of guys had to, I feel like start a lot of guys last year who maybe in an ideal world. They wouldn't be starting yet. I believe my count was, is there were a couple of openers in this, but I believe they had 17 pitchers make starts last year because they hit a point as if you're a Reds fan, but if you're not a Reds fan, you're listening to this. You may not know. They hit a point in July and August where it's like, okay, who's on the IL from our rotation. And the answer was pretty much everyone, but Luke Weaver. (laughs) <laughs> and so they, there were points where it was like, if you were, if you were breathing and functional and especially a guy who you were going to have to put on the 40 man anyway, or was already on the 40 man, you were coming up and Connor Phillips had moments where he showed, okay, this is a guy that looks like he belongs. He also had a start while the reds were still not out of it where he did retire a batter. Walk the bases loaded, and then okay, Connor, it's it's time to exit stage right and hand this off to somebody. Because we still saw, you know, in, in that case, real wildness. He was really struggling with delivery. And we would see these in moments, and then we see other outings where he's like, okay, this guy's locked in. And so I don't know yet because the one thing that I think is kind of a, a key red's organizational philosophy in recent years on the pitching side. That's been very interesting to watch. Is they are a stuff first, feel second organization. You know, I would describe the Guardians are a stuff, a, a feel first, stuff second. Their Guardians approach is let's take these guys who fill the strike zone over and over and over, and then let's improve their stuff so that Shane Bieber or Tanner, ba- you know, the, these guys become studs because shane bieber goes from being a guy who's like you know it's it's, again the seattle george kirby approach also george kirby in at elon was a a stud pitcher the only question was is like is there anything here that's plus which sounds funny to say now because george kirby like everything's plus now (laughs) the reds approach is i mean take joe boyle as an example the guy that they traded at the a's they want guys to have stuff, and then they're like, we believe that we can help them improve their control, their command. Connor Phillips isn't there yet, and we don't know if he will be. The good news about him is, is that if he's not, he probably is. I don't want to make certain, like you can walk seven a, a, a per nine or anything and be a good reliever, but I do think in the pen, he has power, high leverage, inning stuff. Yes. I, the, the key part we'll see now is, is in an ideal world, he gets more time in AAA which again goes back to how many of these pitchers they did add a, you know, how many pitchers of this group that they had last year, stay healthy. And then also what's the role of say like a Nick Martinez, who I would say they're probably penciling into their rotation, but obviously has that ability to go bullpen or starter, depending on what you need.
0: JJ, the Red's first round pick a year ago, Cam Collier had a considerable amount of hype behind him. Even though he was a middle of the first round pick, he's the son of a former big leaguer, uh, transferred to a junior college as an 18 year old, 17 uh, year old, excuse me, it was his high schools. You know, would have been a high school senior. Went early to a junior college, put up some really really big numbers. So there was a lot of excitement around him. Went out this year and had a, a pretty difficult first full season. Yes, it's the Florida State League, uh, but even with that nothing he really did stood out statistically scouting reports were very very lukewarm as well what's the outlook for cam collier moving forward here because on the one hand he's an 18 year old in the florida state league you you certainly want to cut him a little bit of slack at the same time it seemed like some of the excitement about him going into the draft has cooled significantly
1: so to start with the good cam collier does hit the ball very hard does have hitter traits Okay, so let's start with the good. That's that. The concerning part is is that Cam Collier hits the ball hard really on the ground. He's gonna have to this is not a guy who you want pulling a lot of ground balls, uh you know, in the long run. like the, he's gonna do more damage if he's uh you know hitting the ball over the fence and balls don't roll over the fence. <laughs> um, so that so that's one. The real concern more than anything, um, but the the, the the real concern is is that his athleticism, his body, at least in your full, first full year in pro ball, went in the wrong direction. Yeah. There's hope that that's, you know, again, that's not a, these are not like, okay, you can't turn that around. But there were concerns, there were questions about whether he would be able to stay at third base long term when he was coming into the draft. I would say that at this point, there are many more concerns about that than there were in the draft. He was playing on a team. I I do think that when they separated him and Sal Stewart, Sal Stewart went up to high A, Collier stayed at low A. It did help both of them because instead of this job share at third base, they each got to play third base regularly. But that said, Sal Stewart's draft report was, guy's going to hit. I don't know if he's going to be able to play third base. And you talk to people who saw Sal Stewart and Cam Collier play third base on the same team and the general consensus is i don't know if sal stewart's going to be able to play third base but i do know he's better than cam collier so if cam collier can't play third base long term he's a first baseman like he does not move well enough no one really projects him to be a right fielder or a left field or anything like that and now you're talking about okay the bat better be really good and that's where there are some current concerns because Again, he's he's very young. I mean, you don't want to, you, you want to caveat, caveat. He's still in the top 10 for a reason. But that said, if we're a year from now, if everything we're talking about now is still the same, then again, he'll still be a 19, 20 year old. It's not like he's done, but it does mean there were trend lines this past year that you want to see turned around into the other direction. And that's where, that's why he did absolutely kind of slide down the, the rankings as well, because again, there's still a good, not as good as it was last year, but still a very solid farm system. And, you know, the reality of it is, is, on a team filled with young, interesting players, there were a lot of nights that Cam Collier was probably the fifth or sixth most interesting player on his Daytona team, because yeah. that was a team full of really interesting guys.
0: Yeah, like you said, still young, you don't want to bail, but you certainly want to see some things trend in a different direction than they did this year. JJ, just as we wrap up here, how many guys were in consideration for the top 10 that didn't make the cut? And, and just overall, how would you assess the depth of the system? Because, again, you want to have studs at the top, but it's also nice to have, you know, uh, having more good players
1: is better than, than not. This is still, I, I would say that where this system is different from last year is, is having an Ellie. Having an Ellie De La Cruz at the top really helps any system. Yeah. They don't have an Ellie De La Cruz at the top. They don't have that prospect. Who you're like, I don't know if he's number one, number two, number three, number four, number five, but he's not ten in baseball. You know, as far as the prospect. What they don't have is that. But at the same time, to their credit, they have a lot of one of the key things I think they've done is is their international program, their international scouting and development. Yes, it's produced Ellie De La Cruz. Let's start there, you know, and, and Alexis. You know, yeah, it's like it. Let's start with thumbs up, like that by itself. You'd be like, if you didn't do anything else this year, we're we're really happy with that. But you look at those. You look at that Daytona team. You look at their ACL team. There are a number of interesting hitters who play premium defensive positions who've got a chance to be you know, regulars, if it all breaks right, or or guys who at least have a chance to be solid, you know, useful role players at least. And, and then you break in, Ty Floyd was, I mean, Ty Floyd was a very solid pitcher for LSU on the national champs last year, was a premium pick and he's not in their top 10. A lot of systems I'd be like going, okay, that's an easy five. This is where I think this is the key thing that I'm looking forward to going into looking ahead to what we're going to see this year. We talk about, we think that the Reds are going to be competitive in the NL Central. As we also, if you're a Reds fan, you well know, they got the second pick. They won the lottery in, it's getting a great draft, but they got the second pick. They know, even though they won 82 games last year, they know that they will be, they will be receiving the ability to restock the farm system significantly, which by the way follows after the other thing about that draft. Rhett Louder, Ty Floyd, they got two, what I would say is, is as college pitchers can go, two relatively safe. Okay, put them on the board. They're pitchers. If they, but if they stay healthy, it's kind of hard to imagine that a Rhett Louder that a Ty Floyd doesn't help them down the road in some way. And then that still allowed them because they had four picks. They also had the competitive balance picks and all, so they have four picks in the top 105. It gave them the money to then say, you know what, we've got a, mm-hmm. a Stammy Stifura, you know, a, an interesting young shortstop. We've got a Cole Schoenwetter who's a high price tag prep arm who you know has a high ceiling there's some risk there and all that they were able to go out and get a the the best defensive catcher that we've seen in the draft maybe in a couple of years we don't know if he's going to hit but but they were able to spread it out connor burns there connor burns connor burns who
0: 80 grade defense it's a question if the hits at 20 30 or
1: 40 but the defense is special and if it's a 30 hit He still will probably, I don't know if he'd have a regular role or anything, but he'd probably still figure out a way to the big leagues in. His defense is that good. Um, I mean, that's there was a reason I was asking on the Slack chat. So what do we think Austin Hedges, you know, what is his BA grade? Because if you told me that he ended up being an Austin Hedges level hitter, which by the way, you know, it's not a great hitter, but. Better than well, he's better had, than he had, hit his his had a
0: ten-year career. I'd say you want better, but yeah, like that Jacob Stallings type. You know, hey, maybe it's, yes. it's a, he's
1: hitting 190-210, but the defense will keep you on a roster. So, so what I was going to say though is, is, they have guys like that. They have a Jacob Herdabici, who was a you know a non-drafted free agent. They've got you know, they've got guys to where when the trade deadline rolls around. And by the way, they're also going to have payroll room. They should because this team is as we said, even with a couple of free agent signing, which all of those free agent signings are very short term, if you notice, they're still going to logically have payroll room. They can make trades that maybe some other teams can't because they can say, you know, we don't want to give up one of these guys, two of these guys, three of these guys. But in the back of their head, they're going to know, you know what, for one, when it comes to position players, there's not a whole lot of openings. If this all goes right, they're pretty handled in the infield for a while here. Then they've got some young, interesting infielders coming up. But on top of that, if you trade an arm or two, you trade, you know, some young arms in this, you do know in the back of your head, we're going to get more of these, The draft is, a, you know, is, or they will have just done that. You know, again, it depends on if they're trading early July or late July, but if they're trading in late July, they're going to know, Wherever our farm system was at the start of July, it's better at the end of July because we have one of the largest bonus pools to play with in the draft. And they didn't expect to have that. They logically should have been picking kind of, you know, in the teens, yeah. which would be a very different story. So that's kind of a a fortuitous bounce of a couple of ping pong balls for them is going to make a significant difference as far as the outlook of this team I think for 2024 and beyond.
0: Yeah, we'll see if they're able to capitalize on it. Again, the Reds have a lot of young talent. They certainly scored big in the draft lottery, and um, we've seen sometimes some reluctance to spend money and and some statements from ownership toward the fan base that are uh, a little bit antagonistic. So, cutting that out will certainly help. But there's no question the talent is in place for the Reds to get back to the postseason, especially in a weak NL Central and then a relatively weak NL Wild Card field. JJ, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Your time as always. Sounds good. Now let's both get some sleep. (laughs) That is definitely for sure. All right, everyone. Well, thank you again for listening to another episode of the Baseball America Top 10 Prospects podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening. We would love to hear from you. For JJ Cooper, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Have a good one.